Hello, March Mad Men listeners. Let's join this episode already in progress. Our matchups are House of Wax, 2005, versus Sorority Row, 2009. And Friday the 13th, Part 6, goes up against the 2019 Child's Play reboot. Enjoy. On to the next matchup. This is in the Dark Horse category. And I'm going to introduce both of these films because I'm, I'm a little partial to them. House of Wax, 2005, seventh seed in the Dark Horse category, facing Sorority Row, 2009, a 10 seed. House of Wax, of course, is a remake uh, that came out 52 years after the original, which might be a record. I'm, I'm not sure. Uh, it was directed by, oh God, Hame Kale Sarah. <laughs> I, wait, wait, I got you because I because I met with him. His name is Jaume Colette Sarah. Thank you, Vic. Thank you, Vic. All right. Well, he's famous for his Liam Neeson movies, as well as uh, The Shallows and Orphan in the horror genre. Uh, the film stars Alicia Cuthbert, Jared Padalecki, Chad Michael Murray, and the infamous Paris Hilton. It was written by Chad and Carrie Hayes, which prompts a patented John and Vic personal digression. The Hayes brothers seem to be working on every other writing assignment in Hollywood when Vic and I worked at the late, once great, Copelson Entertainment, and I was not always blown away by the drafts I read of various Copelson projects, including theirs. But they've gone on to have respectable careers. Notably, these guys wrote The Conjuring. And while the opinions on this podcast about that movie were less than glowing when we covered it last season, do props for launching a, a huge franchise. Vic, do you want to jump into? Do you have any memories of the Hayes brothers at Copelson? I absolutely do. Their original script for Eon Flux was one of the best scripts I ever read. Mm. They obviously bungled it in production but that was the first time i read that and went holy shit these guys know what they're doing uh mm-hmm. this is this is not one of those scripts but that's all right go ahead Ooh, spoiler i'm gonna hold on one second i'm gonna i'm gonna stop you guys right there oh yeah what you got there okay, rich well, it's an el segundo and fremont brewing uh collaboration it's a west coast ipa called el fremonto Nice. Well, I I do love the classic West Coast IPA. I do, too. So this movie seems to be best known for killing off Paris Hilton, or her character at any rate, in fairly spectacular fashion, which in 2005 was something more than a few people enjoyed watching simulated. And I had put in my notes, cue Vic's inevitable Paris Hilton story from The Simple Life, but uh, I stand corrected. Uh, it, it's, it's Rich that was riding around in a hearse piloted by Paris Hilton. Yeah, Rich, how, how did that occur? The same way that all things in Hollywood occur, John, a producer more important than me said, get in the back of that hearse. She's driving. <laughs> Makes sense. I said, I said, okay, boss. And you were clutching the Chihuahua, I assume? <laughs> I was actually on, um, uh, no, I think the Chihuahua was, was elsewhere. I will tell you, it was a actual hearse because like, this was a reality show, which means there's just like, there's just no plan. Like, unlike a feature film, like there's no plans or like safety precautions. They just do stuff. Um, and so I was in the back and I can tell you that the back of a hearse is not a comfortable place to take a ride on the freeway. 
Um, it is a hard surface. There are rollers so that the casket can get in and out. Oh yeah. Um, and it was a it was a legitimate hearse that was borrowed from a funeral home um, for the purposes of the shoot. And sh- the whole shtick was that she was going to drive the hearse erratically. So I was literally sliding around on casket rollers <laughs> the whole time. Um, it was a very uh, it was a very unpleasant, albeit like memorable. Um, experience and that was one of three seasons of the simple life that that i did so i got a fair amount of time with uh with paris and nicole (laughs) over the years and um they're they're fine they're fine people Mm -hmm. they're living very different lives than we are (laughs) i think rich are we are we are we still compelled by ndas to not tell stories about the (laughs) i i I don't know i think it's i think it'd be i think it'd be poor form to besmirch their character yeah Um, so i won't delve into it um that's we we won't mention that that paris was driving that hearse because she mowed down a pedestrian (laughs) uh, uh, rampage (laughs) no i'm kidding i'm kidding paris's lawyers that didn't happen i made that up that was ray caruth Wait, I don't know. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. All right. Wouldn't be a March Madness episode if we didn't get that dark. (laughs) I know of at least one listener of this show that might get that reference. All right. um, Let me finish up with this. Uh, The movie was filmed in Australia, and it grossed a considerable $70 million worldwide, 32 of that uh, in North America. Wikipedia ads, and I wish this kind of information came up more often. We just talked about a movie. We wondered how it did in home entertainment. But House of Wax 2005 made $42 million on VHS and DVD rentals. It received a chilly reception from critics, however. Going against the, the, the mainstream or the, the current of opinion, film critic Stephen Hunter of the Washington Post gave it four out of five stars. He called it a guilty pleasure and wrote that House of Wax gives horror fans exactly what they want. And Mick LaSalle of the San Francisco Chronicle called it lots of fun. It did get three Golden Raspberry Award nominations, which is never a sign of critical esteem, and Paris Hilton won the Golden Raspberry for Worst Supporting Actress, which I actually don't feel was justified. And for the record, both the Teen Choice and MTV Movie Awards recognized Hilton with positive awards, and the movie won the Teen Choice Award for Best Horror Movie of the Year. Yeah. Interestingly, Rich was in the back of that hearse on her way to accept the Razzie. <laughs> <laughs> So what do I think of House of Wax 2005, personally? I remember liking it more than I expected to when it was released. I don't believe I saw it in the theater, but it did make a favorable impression on me without really motivating me to ever watch it again until this tournament was devised. And in the midst of you know, struggling through lots of plotting 1980s slashers that I was watching at that time, I was struck by how relatively fleet on its feet this script by Chad and Carrie Hayes was, how genuinely creepy certain moments were. The waxification of living victims comes immediately to mind and how sporadically humorous the film was as well. It combines a lot of disparate slasher movie elements. We have this kind of backwoods aspect, so Vic's beverage is motivated. Uh, We have a wolf in sheep's clothing character. 
We have a creepy masked man killing people. I think it checks a wide range of boxes. And the name actors in the movie do bring something to the table with their performances. I think Alicia Cuthbert definitely has final girl moves. So yeah, I I was pleasantly surprised by this one in much the same way I was by Sorority Row, which I will now introduce. So Sorority Row is another remake. This is a 2009 release made a mere 27 years after the original The House on Sorority Row. Directed by Stuart Hendler, the film stars Brianna Evigan, Leah Pipes, Rumor Willis, Audrina Patridge, and the late great Carrie Fisher. I want to say right off the top that this movie leans into the humor a lot more than its opponent tonight. And in my opinion, profitably so. It has a sly, wry wit that is far edgier than most of the meta-division films that uh, one could readily classify as horror comedies. I think most of the humor in this movie lands. Sadly, it grossed just $27 million worldwide. On a budget of $12.5 million, it received negative reviews from critics, though... Our good friends at the Teen Choice Awards honored Patridge and Willis with nominations. I could really find nary a compliment on this movie's Wikipedia entry. Most critics actively disagreed with me on the film's ability to balance humor and horror. Well, I think they're just wrong. As with House of Wax, I saw this around the time of its release and I found it surprisingly charming. Doubling back for our show, my viewing experience more recently was quite similar. There's a lot of quote-unquote bad girls in this movie, and I enjoyed, or mean girls, or both, and I enjoyed watching them do their thing. The worst of the lot, Jessica, as played by Leah Pipes, is coldly calculating in a consistently entertaining way. The elaborate setup to this movie, with its back-to-back twists, sets the tone for a script that will constantly be trying to subvert the audience's expectations in fun ways. And I believe it does that. And the work of the writers, Josh Stolberg, Pete Goldfinger, and Mark Rosman, it deserves kudos. Stolberg and Goldfinger notably wrote Piranha 3D, which I think is even more fun than this movie. And it kind of gives you an idea of their twisted, but essentially lighthearted approach to the genre. So I'm looking forward to our conversations about both of these films, but I'll say at the outset, I think I do favor Sorority Row, which is less ambitious, both conceptually and in terms of the scope of its cinematic world. But I think it's more fun to watch. I'm certainly open to being swayed, however. So let's talk about these movies. Uh, Vic, as always, you're, you're poised over the microphone. Unleash. Well, I, I'm just curious, correct me if I'm wrong, but does uh, Audrina Patridge from Sorority Row is also, she was a star in The Hills, right? Like the Lauren Conrad reality show? Yeah. I don't have that information, but uh, possibly. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna hang on. I'm gonna I'm gonna pull it up right now mm-hmm. because if so, just interesting that we managed to land two movies with reality show stars that Indeed. people wanted to see dead. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. You can't produce that kind of genius content. So she's she's playing Megan, which is uh, yeah that 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 the character in the open. 
Here's what I'm going to say, John, about Sorority Rogue, because you you uh, had some some things to say about that. I liked the Soderbergh kind of traffic style of cinematography and cutting. I thought there was some really interesting camera work. Uh, I thought Carrie Fisher was was by far the the standout. I thought she her casting was brilliant. I thought she gave a good performance. I thought she was yes. fun. She clearly sort of understood what she was in. This is also exactly the same movie as I Know What You Did Last Summer, except I Know What You Did Last Summer was better. Sorry. I don't agree with you in any way, shape, or form. <laughs> yeah, see, the, the thing is that it, it is, A, like you have to admit, the setup is, is just literally identical. Except when you cut to a year later, you have just a host of awful characters. Like there's just nobody I liked in this movie. Yeah, who, who uh, I just called the protagonist is just dreadful. Okay, I, 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 yeah, I did say that I don't mind. I guess you could call it anti-heroine characters as long as they're interesting or funny or both. And yeah, that that wasn't a negative to me. I certainly wasn't like. Gosh, I, I wish I was deeply invested in whether or not somebody made it out of this movie alive. But I, I, I get it. And then I also had the realization as I was watching Jamie Chung uh, uh, wander blindly into a, a field of bubbles in an attempt to disconnect a hot. I like that scene. I I so and you you sort of, and you sort of go oh like this is that's actually kind of an in, a setup like a suspenseful setup you can't see what's yeah. going on there. What I realized when that was happening was that I had seen this before and had no memory of it until that moment, which was like 45 minutes into the movie. Well, uh, Vic, that would be tremendously damning if you had never touched alcohol or marijuana in your life. All right. Now, John, that's a, that, feels, that feels like a personal shot, and we're going to talk about that off mic, but... Uh, <laughs> no, I'm just saying... I. Uh, it, it's I, I was entertained by Sorority Row. I don't want to sound like I'm just shitting on it. But, but you I are. do think that when you're looking at a movie with a with a very familiar setup, I didn't get the humor. I actually now I'm now I'm kind of curious mm. to watch it again and see if I see what I was missing in terms of the humor. Because that's one of the experiences that I think we've all had in the course of this competition is that a lot of these movies feel like they would be great if we were all like sitting around watching them together and like drinking and, and talking about it as, as yeah. things are happening on screen. And so this may, in fact, be a movie that I would deeply enjoy in that context. By the way, it's not, it's not gaggy or gimmicky it. humor. It's all dialogue. It's definitely verbal humor. Like, it's not like it's, okay. oh, you know, what? That's a funny comedic set piece. It's like just asides and, and you know, one-liners and stuff. No, I understood. It just, I was not deeply amused by the movie, and I it was... It was fine. Again, it was it was entertaining. It's not a it's not a bad movie, but from a scripting and a character standpoint, if you want what is for me a more layered portrayal of what people would be would be going through and dealing with, you know, a year or three years after some kind of trauma like that, I legitimately think that I know what you did last summer is a a better written better performed portrayal of that story. Okay, As a but horror may, film, this it, movie is clearly not going for that. Yeah. That is not its intent. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. that that might be a more accurate psychological portrayal, but it also would be a more joyless one, I, I would argue. And yes, this isn't, you know, psychologically devastating or anything, but it it's it's just being glib. It's I, I'm not gonna lie, it's the gossip girl of, of slasher movies, but it I thought it was fun. Rich, yeah, weigh in. I mean, I I sort of liked it. Like I, I found it to be I'm I'm with you. Like I found it to be kind of like light on its feet and entertaining in a way that I was able to get into and not in a way that I was expecting. Like this this is great you know, like late night, you know, if you, if you've had a few beers or a joint, like this is like a a fun movie to sit down to and then maybe not remember a few years later. I'm not naming names. I'm just saying like, that's a good way to to take this movie. Um, no disagreement. I mean, I am, I mean, I definitely, I also had the note, like my, my note was, I know where you rushed last summer. Um, it's definitely, has the, it definitely has like the general template of, um, of, I know what you did last summer. I mean, I actually kind of liked the, the, like the, like inciting incident at the, in, in act one of it. Um, I was annoyed because I had watched the trailer which like even if you only watch half the trailer, it gives away the entire first act of the film, which is I hate trailers. a little obnoxious because it was like the one thing about it that I actually thought was like kind of like a a novel story point. You know, and the dialogue is like a it's like a mixed bag. I mean like there there it does have some moments where things are funny, but it also had like moments where I was like, these lines feel like it was like first draft, like placeholders where where like lines where you're like, I'm going to come back and write something better later. But then like, it ends up like making it into the final cut lines, like the exchange where one girl says, you never had my back. And the other one says, well, you never had a backbone. And the other one where a woman was, is lost and wandering through a, through an office saying, Hey, I don't have time for hide me, rape me. Like, I'm like, I don't even know what that line is supposed to mean. Like there's some real like clunkers in here, but I agree that like they get points for trying to have characters who are sort of like quippy and and funny. I don't know how much they read like real people, um, but like I don't again, I don't even really feel like that is like 100 percent the point. I will say like the while it's like stupid, the actual slashing takes itself pretty seriously um, when it can afford to. I mean, the lethal, like, tire iron weapon that our killer wields is bizarre and kind of yeah. gimmicky. But, like, the gore is, like, pretty legit. Like, there's a compound fracture at one point with the character who's killed in the attic. And, like, that wound is, like, very visceral and believable. And, like, I actually thought the foam party was sort of a fun place for the showdown. Like, I'm kind of with you, John. Like, I've, like, I've seen a lot of dumb set pieces when it comes to, like, slashers and, like, that one at least will have like had a had an air of like novelty to it. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I didn't hate this movie. And there's a good bottle kill early on uh, that stands yeah, that out. Bottle kills yeah. also unsettling. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I want to be clear. I didn't hate this movie. But you yeah. love House of Wax. <laughs> we can Let's talk about House of Wax too. Okay. But come on, look. You guys have to admit, like. The the third act killer reveal is scream level. Mm, yeah, it's, not not 
not quite as bad as Scream Two, if that's what you're alluding to. I mean, I, I didn't think I don't think it's genius, but I, I think it plays better than Scream Two, which is not a huge compliment. But if that's what we're talking about, uh, yeah, I, I, I think it's I think it's on par with Scream Two. It didn't. All I can tell you is the movie didn't entirely lose me the way that Scream Two lost me at that point. You know, wh- whether I'm holding it to a lower bar, possibly, possibly, maybe, maybe this movie is is somewhat of a, a guilty pleasure, but I just kind of like I, I find it a fun ride. But honestly, yeah, let's. I want to hear you guys talk about House of Wax because I'm open to to that one winning out here. But say some good things about it. <laughs> I'll I'll kick it off with a with a question. In your opinion, which in movie set piece is a more apt metaphor for House of Wax? An intricate construction that ultimately melts under its own weight or a festering pit of indistinguishable roadkill? <laughs> Both are in the film. <laughs> <laughs> You, you know, I, I think I will go with the former, not that it was extremely complimentary, but, uh, <laughs> I mean, it, at least, at least the melting of wax in this movie does amount to like a cool set piece. Yes. Um, yes. you know, and like the, and, and, and props are that. I find the I find the main title of this film like literally like the the title design of it that also adorns the the house like there's just something very visually cool about it um, that I really like so it's like yeah. this movie definitely has some aesthetic qualities but like you know like I don't know I don't really like want to belabor the the talking in this movie I just like I similar to Vic's review of initial review of Sorority Row I just like I strongly disliked all of these characters. Um, and I didn't like their relationships. Like I wasn't like rooting for any of them to, to really, to, to make it. And so like, that was like a tough haul, especially for a movie that is nearly two hours long, but you know, yeah, I'd say that like, it it gets some novelty out of like the, the wax stuff. Like there's definitely some cool visuals. Like there's some catacombs and some, you know, like the, the whole like wax making process that's running underneath the house alludes to some cool visuals. But like, I also feel like a lot of it amounts to, you know, things that were lifted from like nine inch nails videos. Um, mm-hmm. And the movie, mm-hmm. you know, sounds like it too. Like the, the soundtrack is, is just like trying so hard. Um, you know, like it's mm-hmm. kind of a painful trip back to the, back to the aughts for me. <laughs> I I found this movie there was there was an oddity to it that I actually appreciated and I remember when it came out I mean there really was John I I I had this in my notes but you mentioned it like the driving force in the marketing was like see Paris Hilton get a ball shoved <laughs> through her face yeah uh, you know, like, spoil, sorry, spoiler alert, but like, if you were around when this movie came out, there was one reason you went to see it, and it was because you hated Paris Hilton, <laughs> and you wanted to see her get killed in a fucking slasher movie. <laughs> and and watching it without, like, without any of that context, because Paris Hilton, like, recently, she's kind of been in the news a little bit, but like, she's sort of devoid of our, she's, she's 
absent of our cultural consciousness now. And she's certainly not a target at this point. Yeah, the way she was then. Yeah. And so I. An easy target. Fine. She's fine in the movie. She's not great. She's not awful. But so trying to take it on its own merits in a way that I think I wasn't able to when I when I first saw it when it came out. It's a really weird movie. I mean, it reminds me a little bit, I mean, uh, in sort of obviously of Tourist Trap. But I liked that it embraced that oddity. There's a, the, the revelations that you have about the town are incredibly unsettling as they, as they expand. I agree that the character stuff is meh. Uh, but I loved there was a there's a a character who gets her lips super glued shut, which I thought was a nice touch. Unsettling. And then has one of her fingers cut off in another particularly unsettling scene when she can't scream because her lips are are uh, glued shut. And yes, the the idea of of being encased in wax and I mean, there's a, a really horrific scene yeah. where you realize that someone is still alive inside their their wax. There's just something a little bit off kilter about this, in a way that there isn't in Sorority Row. And again, I I know I talked a lot of shit. I did not dislike Sorority Row. Sorority Row is a is fun. I like kills. Uh, I like Carrie Fisher. There's there's plenty of stuff to enjoy in that, but it doesn't have it doesn't have something that that really makes it stand out. And I feel like this, even though it, again the the wax house is nonsensical in a lot of ways, it stands out, man. It makes for a hell of a climax in a way that that a lot of the movies in the competition don't have. You'll get no argument from me on that score. I mean, I really do like both these films for very different reasons. And I have absolutely no emotional investment in how this vote goes. Cast your votes, gentlemen. I think I was the least veiled about mine, so I'll say uh, Sorority Row. I'm casting mine for uh, House of Wax. Shit. Ooh, John, it's a Sophie's choice for you. It is. Okay, like in in 30 seconds a piece, you both tell me why I should vote for your film. Starting with No. 30 seconds. <laughs> Come on. Rich. I already used all my best lines. Come on. <laughs> Improv, bro. <laughs> Okay, Rich, you're going to have to live with one of these two movies, like for at least another round. Like, tell me why you would rather we talk about Sorority Row than House of Wax. Um, because I'd rather enjoy myself. Okay, that's a good argument. <laughs> okay, Vic. <laughs> I'd, I'd rather watch Paris Hilton get killed again. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'm going with Sorority Row. <laughs> <laughs> Son of a bitch. <laughs> God damn it. Tire iron. It's the dumbest weapon I ever heard of. Yeah, the, the timer, the tire iron's dumb. I kind of like it. Wait, it's too late. Where were you 30 seconds ago? <laughs> yeah. I thought it was kind of cool and memorable. Um, not genius, but. All right. Uh, one more round for the finishing uh, run here. I'm going to grab another beer. So I'll be right back. All right, one last Miller Lite for the road as we take on another matchup. 
This is Friday the 13th, part six, Jason Lives, squaring off with the 2019 remake of Child's Play. And I'm actually looking forward to this conversation on a few levels, but uh, I'm going to let it play out. Rich, tell us about Friday the 13th, part six, please. All right. This enters into the dicey proposition. I got two pages of notes on this thing. So I'm going to like try to, I'm going to try to like skip my way through it. Um, okay. So Friday the 13th, part six, Jason lives, or if you believe the title card, it's Jason lives Friday the 13th, part six, either way you look at it, it is a 1986, uh, slasher that is directed by Tom McLaughlin and starring Tom Matthews and Jennifer cook. It is the sixth installment in the the Friday franchise. It's also the last one that will feature the character of Tommy Jarvis in the protagonist role. You know, in in theory, this thing is essentially continuing on from a new beginning. So it picks up with Tommy after he accidentally resurrects Jason in a Frankenstein-esque cemetery experience. He was trying to destroy him, but guess what? It didn't work. Instead, Jason is on his way back to Crystal Lake to slaughter another group of campers. Um, And Tommy, meanwhile, is fighting the local law enforcement, working with the sheriff's daughter and trying to find a way to get Jason down once and for all. So this was the, you know, like I would say, like, critically speaking, like from everything I can tell, and this is all from research, none of it from memory. Um, like this is a series that had really waned in terms of like critical response, you know, and that's saying something like, I think that this movie was always like a punt. This series was always a, a punching bag um, for critics. And this one actually started to get some, some positive reception. Um, it was really noted for the fact that it had a lot of like self referential humor. And, you know, it's been pointed out that this thing is maybe sort of like a precursor of the works of things like Kevin Williamson's Scream series. Um, and I think there's a number of places where you can sort of like you can logically draw those those parallels. It's worth noting that Tom Matthews, who took over the, the role of uh, Tommy Jarvis for this film, was also in Return of the Living Dead, which is, of course, is one of the greatest zombie films of all time. And, you know, the, the tone of this movie in general was the result of the producer, Frank Mikusa Jr., who didn't really care for, like, the, the tone that they were striking with, like, a new beginning. And he ended up connecting with Tom McLaughlin, who was a comedy director, and decided to take this sort of, like, meta-humor approach where people were constantly, like, breaking the, the fourth wall. And you get very Kevin William-esque line, Williamson-esque lines um, such as like the characters having an exchange at the at the beginning, you know, talking about whether or not they would survive a horror movie. You get the grave digger who actually looks at the camera at some point while talking about like why they have to go and dig up Jason, and they looks at the camera and says, "Some folks sure got a strange idea of entertainment." In terms of like my feelings, I mean, this is the you know I mentioned early in the podcast that like I remember going to go see Friday the Thirteenth films in the theater as a as a pretty young kid. I am relatively sure that this is the one that I saw in theaters. And I do remember loving it at the time. I will say that my feelings on it have maybe changed a little bit. You know, the thing sets off like preposterously enough, like with like, for one, like who the hell buried Jason in the first place. Second of all, he's going to be resurrected like Frankenstein. 
you know, I will say that like the Jason's like new look as a corpse really sets a high bar in terms of like the mag and the maggot and worm content you can get in a movie. And that leads to this James Bond motif uh, style opening that I think really sets the sets the tone for this movie. It's full of like all these like strange characters. You know, I love the fact that there's a bunch of like school kids that show up that don't really end up playing into the the plot at all there are these paintball guys who i just absolutely hate they're these sort of like goofy corporate schlubs and like their minute characterizations are just like too much for me you have like jason like throwing one into a tree only to like leave a happy face behind jason like holding a seveled arm behind like it turns it into sort of a cartoon version of of what the series was before don't get me wrong the series before was like no prize at many points. Um, but it's like the, the whole thing is just like over the top. There's like a sheriff who has a giant laser scope um, that plays prominently into like a number of scenes for no apparent reason. Just like the details that were inspiring the screenwriter are pretty mysterious. And the movie on top of that is almost like a PG, you know, which is fine by slasher standards because like, I'd say like the gore is up there with something like happy death day. But while maintaining like thinner characters and, and less story, you even have Jason doing like a head tilt at some point in what I guess could be argued as sort of a joke on the Halloween series, which I'm willing to, to take. Um, but I mean, like the kills are happening largely off camera. There's lots of people pointing guns at each other, which I think is just sort of a, a mark of the 80s. You know, it's no wonder to me that to me that I really like this movie as a kid, like this movie has the sensibilities of a 13-year-old. And, you know, I will say every now and then they do go for a smart joke that really works. There's, like, the good line, like, where the kids are hiding underneath the bunk because Jason's killing people, and one of the kids says to the other one, so what were you going to be when you grew up? The, the ending is leads to a pretty iconic image that I think we'll forever associate Jason with, it's very effective and ends up being one of the most iconic of the series. Although the way in which they ultimately restrain Jason makes little to no sense at the end of the day, I will always be a Friday the 13th apologist, but I will say that this film while trying to be funny and intentionally so is pretty dumb with some occasionally inspired moments. It also is the real like introduction of Jason as like a supernatural supervillain, which I think sets the tone for the downhill slalom that this film and its many sequels will take, despite the fact that it didn't exactly start at the peak to begin with. You know, to be honest, I, the three of us covered this movie. Um, no, we didn't. No, I didn't. Yeah, you were for Halloween. Yeah. So yeah. I didn't know your feelings about this movie, Rich. Um, but I'm a, I'm a little surprised, though. You're you're kind of giving it a, a you know a nostalgic sepia tinted appreciation. I would say that's a that's a, a lukewarm review at best. Vic, where do you stand at the moment? Well, I'm going to recommend that people go back and listen to our podcast on this. I I did give it a listen, and yeah, we had we had some strong feelings about this. I this is hands down my favorite Friday the Thirteenth film. Uh, I think Jennifer Cook as Megan is as spunky and cool a final girl as we've had in this competition. I do want to point out, uh, John, I'm I'm directing this to you that uh, there is, as Rich pointed out, a scene where Jason walks through a cabin filled with kids. 
I knew it this was them, coming. It leaves them all alive. <laughs> I'm just saying, John, that's kind of soft. I don't I don't like my horror movie soft. I guess you do. I don't know. Oh, <laughs> you know where to hit me. You know where to hit me. <laughs> okay. I, I, I think we will have an opportunity to dissect this movie, but I definitely was thinking about Fear Street 78 when, <laughs> when Rich was giving that little rundown. And my first thought was the two jokes that he referenced were infinitely better than any anything in Fear Street 78. I mean, those are, those are really solid lines. Just hearing them from Rich, let alone watching the scene but yeah let's just let's let's put all that aside um for now because that's not the question of the day this too is probably my favorite friday the 13th movie uh i I don't want to probably as i said i don't want to burn a lot of precious airtime on it because i will be stunned if it loses i'm definitely voting for it at the end of the day but all i'm going to say is i think this is a strong contender both in the peak franchise regional and overall, and uh, it's it's definitely interesting, and I guess we'll we'll get into it maybe uh, in a more head to head fashion. That that I Rich could, doesn't doesn't like it that much. My my only question, and I guess like I was just like surprised, is that in terms of Friday the Thirteenth films, and we don't have to go into it deeply, but I'm just saying like in terms of Friday the Thirteenth films, like didn't you want more like Tom Savini in this movie? Like, that's what I come to, like, Friday films for. It's not for, like, the clever dialogue. I, I did um, think of a body being a, a, a character that we didn't necessarily expect to die in, in such a fashion, being bent back in a horrible way like an accordion. Um, and I, my thought wasn't that that was a PG kill. I, I, I will throw that out right away. I, I think that was a fairly hardcore kill, I'm not going to totally disagree with you because I, I, I agree that, yeah, Tom, the Tom Savini at his best, you know, really nasty, gory stuff that, that might not be a component, but I mean, I think calling it PG is, is, is probably unnecessarily harsh. Okay. Again, not that that's the kiss of death. Like there are movies mm-hmm. in this competition that I've stood up for that have, they're very light on the gore. I'm, I'm not a gore hound. I'm just saying like, when I come to this franchise, yeah, I think that's what I tend to come for. And so I think I just, maybe it had been long enough since, since I had seen it that like, I felt a little thrown by that. And I always hated the paintballers. But I mean, my argument to that would be their victims. So did you want to cry when they died or, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, frankly, they take they take up like relatively little screen time. They're just like agonizingly stick in the mind um, for me in this film for for some reason. But one of the hallmarks but, uh, of slasher movies, uh, generally of of a fun kind, is that you again we're talking about Parasolton and everything. Like on some level, you're you're not rooting for them to get out of it alive. I guess is how I would put it. You know, we can debate. Maybe we should at some point during the season whether that's socially conscious or a good thing. But uh, we we root for some characters to die because we know it's all fake and in fun. But we don't like this character, and you know what I mean. Like that. That's kind of all swirling around with this issue. I certainly wouldn't like dislike a movie 
because the people who get killed were unlikable. That's just my first knee-jerk reaction. We'll pick up this discussion again when we talk about Terrifier. <laughs> oh man! I, honestly, I can't wait to rewatch that movie. But we'll leave it. Uh, we'll leave it aside. Uh, but yeah, yeah, that's an interesting point. Uh, okay. Well, let's talk about uh, Child's Play 2019. Vic, tell us all about it. All right, Child's Play 2019, directed by Lars Klevberg. Sounds God, right. we really, guys, I feel like. There's a there's a there's a running joke on here that we just butcher every name we have any opportunity to butcher. So I'm gonna go with Lars Klevberg. Well, you uh, you you got Jaume Claude Sarah or whatever his name Jaume. is. Jaume. No, I Don. I had to sit in a room across from him. I looked it up on Google. I was I was fucking terrified to say his name. Um, yeah. Uh, anyways. So you were like, hey, Jaume, how's it hanging, man? Basically, yeah. yes, and then I think I was there with his producing partner, and his producing partner still corrected my pronunciation, so I still <laughs> fucked it up. But yeah, Jaume Jaume Kletzera, I believe. Uh, okay. Fuck me. So anyway, you, you have nothing to be ashamed uh, of. So, well, I have lots to be ashamed of, but that's not for this <laughs> podcast. Child's Play 2019, directed by Lars Klevberg, budgeted at 10 million and gross 45 million. It was generally well received. I think it was 61 percent on Rotten Tomatoes. The logline is that widowed mom Karen buys her lonely son Andy a good guy doll that just happens to have been programmed for evil by a bullied worker at the good guy doll factory in Vietnam. It forms a bond with Andy, determined to be his friend to the end. <laughs> Sorry, I feel like they got more use out of that line than the original, uh, yes. the original child's play did. So look, first and foremost... No shit. This movie is exactly like a kid's movie that I just watched called Ron Gone Wrong. Okay, it's about a kid's robot friend that malfunctions so it doesn't have to obey its programming and it beats up his bullies and helps him make normal friends. Wow. <laughs> One, like it's the setup is so similar that I have to think that the writers saw this and were like, we should make this as a kid's movie. I, one of these movies should have been called Chucky Gone Wrong, and it literally could have been either of them. That said, I really liked Wrong Gone Wrong, but wouldn't you know it, I really like Child's Play, too. This is how you do a reboot. You take the concept, and you run with it in your own direction. This Child's Play removes the supernatural voodoo element and instead gives an insane robot a fatal attraction-like obsession with Andy that hinges on our childhood need for friendship. It also takes advantage of modern smart home technology to give Chucky a more believable and, frankly, brutal kill count. There's certainly some silliness. This is still a killer doll movie, after all. But there are some great tense scenes, too. I love this bit with Andy trying to dispose of a watermelon that Chucky has decorated with the face of his mom's asshole boyfriend. He winds up wrapping it up in, in like, wrapping paper and, and having to give it to his neighbor as a gift. It's just fantastic. Brian Tyree Henry has a very different take on the Chris Sarandon role of the cop investigating the crimes, but he's very likable. I think he's very effective. I'm in love with Aubrey Plaza. That's got nothing to do with her performance. I'm just in love with her. And the kids are all great. 
not just Gabriel Bateman as Andy, although he definitely improves on the original Andy, but he is older, which does kind of give him an advantage. But also, uh, and here we go, butchering names again, Beatrice Kitsos as Phelan and Ty Consiglio as Pug. I'm honestly not sure what Tim Matheson is doing in this movie. Like the first time he pops up, I was like, is that Tim Matheson? But yes, it is. That's Tim Matheson. Seriously, I don't know what he's doing there. The ending has a go-for-broke kind of madness that's really impressive in its scope and especially its body count. I think the biggest issue I would take with this movie is the design of Chucky, which has creepy moments, and you had to do something different with it. But overall, it's just not as effective as the original. And while the choice of Mark Hamill for the voice I think was really inspired, I still prefer Brad Dourif. But overall, this movie is a really pleasant surprise. I wish more reboots would would take the kind of chances that this one does. I don't know. What did you guys think? Well, I'm very much on the same page with you there, Vic. And I want to name the screenwriter uh, Tyler Burton Smith because I think he has written a script that in in this tournament, I am rarely thinking, wow, I love the writing. And I think that this, this movie absolutely did that for me. He breathes new life into this Chucky character. If we were going to give out an award for best screenplay so far, I, I would I would want to bestow that honor. And there, there are some weak points, and, and, and one of them is definitely the setup for this, how this Chucky, uh, without Charles Lee Ray, becomes um, a psychopathic <laughs> killer. It's pretty weak from a plausibility perspective because, you know, you have this disgruntled employee in the factory and his supervisor's like, hey, you're totally fired, but before you go, finish that advanced AI robot doll and, and, and then don't let the door hit you on the, uh, in the ass on the way out. It's, it's silly. But... Yeah, this movie is less a traditional slasher movie, and I love that, Vic, you you actually named uh, one of the movies that, that came to mind for me. I know it's a dated reference, but Fatal Attraction, and I'll throw in a slightly less dated reference, Single White Female. Uh, they still make movies with that basic narrative formula, obviously. There was one with Leeton uh, Meester of Gossip Girl, I think not too long ago, the roommate, but it's more the stalker paradigm in like a restraining order kind of a way, like not, not, not the stalker who's a masked dude hunting people. But as this Chucky says, if they don't let us play, they all go away. And that, that is a different paradigm. Obviously, it must be noted that Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 is a plot point in this movie. (laughs) A crucial one at that. Now, that's meta. (laughs) We literally get Chop Top going, time for incoming mail! <laughs> it's strange. It's that, a whole. It's 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 a weird like chopped up version of it the, is like it's like yeah. it's like a remixed like best of version of Texas Chainsaw Massacre two. I noticed that. I mean, you, you the three of us know that these kids were clearly watching the movie out of sequence or something because yeah, we're just getting this random greatest hits package of the film's <laughs> most violent imagery, and the kids are laughing their asses off it. At, off at it and it has a very different impact on the impressionable ai chucky and 
I, I love that it's about half an hour into Child's Play 2019 before Chucky suddenly and alarmingly goes from damaged and sweetly misunderstood into something darker. And he disobeys Andy's most important command, which is not to hurt other living things. There's, uh, there's a, a character in this movie who's leading a, a double life. I, I'm much more spoiler-free. Unfortunately, Vic, uh, Vic kind of cracked the seal on, on some spoilers here, which that's fine. I don't, I don't think you know it's out of bounds. But um, the John, asshole boyfriend. If it boyfriend. was fine, you wouldn't have brought it up. <laughs> I just try to err on the side of of, of no no spoilers, but uh, yes, the character that you alluded to, the uh, asshole boyfriend, I, I love that he's leading a double life. It it just fits the character perfectly, and which takes me to the first kill, which I found excellent. It's just creative and nasty and kind of clever in the way the chain of events fit together and play out. For me, it may even be an awards contender when we talk about best kills, just because of how elaborate it is. The victim involved, there's a clever use of Christmas lights, and it leads us to Chucky's second gift for Andy. Let's just say it involves a watermelon. Again, Vic let the cat out of the bag there. But the timing <laughs> the timing of the reveal on it and the quality of the practical effects when this thing is first revealed to the audience. It's a fantastic jump scare. There's n- it's, that's not a cat jump scare. It's a human face on a watermelon jump scare. <laughs> Why is there a fruit involved? <laughs> Great dialogue. <laughs> so much fun dialogue. I mean, it's, a, it's, a, it's a good question. Like I think my, my biggest mystery of the movie is why is it that the boyfriend has a watermelon patch in his backyard that is, that is, that is producing watermelons in winter in Chicago? It's a front yard, I believe, actually, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, yeah. That makes even less sense. I know. I know. Fair? Not, as, not as little sense as taking down your Christmas lights in the middle of the night without <laughs> unplugging them first. At but least he acknowledges it that. It has, it, it has, we, we talked about compound fractures in uh, mm-hmm. uh, Sorority Row. It has a compound fracture that literally made me gasp audibly. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a standout scene. I agree, John. Yeah. It really, it does absolutely stand out. And I, I love the cop, uh, Detective Mike. He's a great character on the page. Great performance from the actor. <laughs> Some lines like, white guy dead in a watermelon patch. Poetic. <laughs> 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 and even the hearing impaired don't want to listen to me. That's fantastic. <laughs> it's just so good. I mean... You want to talk about good screenwriting in any genre, period, let alone a slasher movie. The scene where Andy's mom makes him deliver the present that Vic talked about. The wrapping paper on the watermelon with the dude's face on it to the old lady down the hall. It's so good. They drop the present. Mom wants her to open it right there. It's just like each beat of it, just as it plays out. This is like... 
in a romantic comedy, it would be it would be just funny. But in this movie, it's funny and suspenseful and tense. The dinner scene where Detective Mike has his hand on the uh, watermelon, talking to Andy while it's sitting there on the table between them, the tension there. It, I just love it. it. It's so well executed and different. I haven't seen all of the Chucky movies, but this has to be the strongest and most bittersweet Chucky and Andy relationship in the whole bunch. I haven't seen the ones where Chucky has like a romantic co-lead. Maybe that brings this kind of dimension to the table. I don't know. But when Andy is crying at a certain point in the film, it feels like having to put a pet to sleep or something, except your pet is crying out your name, hoping that you'll save him. And that got to me, you know, even though in a robotic way, this thing is obviously dangerously cuckoo. I was aware that for a big chunk of the movie, this Chucky means well and is loyal to Andy. I don't think that was ever a Charles Lee Ray thing. I think making the the Chucky and Andy relationship poignant in this movie is a great achievement. Yeah, I will attest. I have not seen all of the child's play films, but I think maybe I've seen more than you. And I can tell you that with the, like the, the Don Mancini child's play films, like, the romantic co-lead does not add a dimension. It adds like a level of like dementia perhaps. Um, but like, you know, they, they take some real interesting swings as this, uh, as the, as the series went on, but, but this thing takes it in a totally different direction. Like if, if I had a criticism of this film, I'd almost say that like, I think it would have been better had it just been its own standalone project and not necessarily a child's play reboot. Um, I mean, they take so many liberties with like the concept that this really could have been its like own thing and like establish even more of its own identity, you know, but it's like, this is the theoretically like the, the launching pad for these filmmakers to do something like that elsewhere. So that's great. You guys have covered it pretty well. I just want to throw out a, a few shout outs here. This is another movie with an awesome score. Um, also another movie with an awesome score done by Bear McCreary, um, who has made several appearances, uh, throughout this competition, having scored, uh, happy death day, freaky and Hellfest as well. And I mm-hmm. find his score here, especially effective, um, just like an excellent use of sort of like choir effects and like these like children's toys, uh, you know, like factoring into sort of like a, like a synth heavy, like orchestral, you know, like raising the dead kind of score that I think is really effective, especially in like the the third act of the movie. I'm surprised that no one has called out the amount of cat violence in this film. Um, Cause there is like a, a fair amount of it, uh, certainly in the, the middle part of it. Off screen, um, of course, you know, off screen, of course. Yeah. I, it's, yeah. It's, it's, it's like, it's, it's tastefully handled. Yeah. Um, I, I'm a cat guy. And I just want to say anyone listening, you don't have to worry about, you know, being overly traumatized by that. If you're, if you're an animal lover, I feel like the, I feel like the, the wrapped head plot, like kind of went on for like too long. Like there are times where I did feel like the plot was kind of like going through these like convolutions to like keep these sh- like kind of sticky gags like up and running. And I did feel like there were some failings in terms of like, Chucky's like command over the internet and other AI I likened to the way that like the, the late nineties treated the internet where it was just sort of this like magic thing that would connect everything and like couldn't be explained. Like Chucky should not be able to tap into a hearing aid. Like a hearing aid is not going to be 
Wi-Fi or even Bluetooth enabled. So it's like, how is he projecting his voice into it? That straight up doesn't make any sense. Well, wait, this is kind of a near future scenario, clearly, because we have autonomous, fully autonomous driving in this film. So I I, I went with that as a sense that like this Caslin Corporation, this fictional company, a few years in the future, you know, just kind of is involved in everything. I I could somewhat, if you can just buy that idea that like, oh yeah, there's like a, something that's Amazon, Google, Apple, and Facebook all in one. Is that possible? Yeah, maybe. I don't know. Uh, Okay. I mean, like, I'll, I'll give it that. There are definitely some boundaries where it's like uh, Chucky's abilities, I think, test the limits of the, like, apparent, like, powers he's been given in, in terms of a character. But, like, that said, it's like, it's not like I'm, like, really going to, like, poke a whole lot of film, <laughs> poke a whole lot of holes in this film for its level of realism. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, like, I'm with you guys. I really enjoy this movie. Um, I thought it was a lot of fun. I really like it when someone takes a reboot. I mean, you could say that about House of Wax, right? Like, yeah. Or, or I suppose so. I've actually never seen the original Sorority Row. I've seen the original House of Wax. You know, where you take a movie and if you want to take the concept and but do something different with it, like don't just remake the movie that I saw. Like, give me something substantial. Like, take that idea and do something else with it. Now you've got my attention. I'm really impressed with the take that they brought to the table on this. Like I, I am more interested in this Chucky than the original Chucky. So props for that. And I just, yeah, I find this movie to be really, really refreshing and, and, and smart in the way that it approaches things. I'm telling you guys the juxtaposition, watch this movie because to me, the, the, not just that we, we referenced fatal attraction, John, you referenced single white female. What's interesting to me is that so often when we're telling this kind of story, it's a, it's a sexual story, right? Right. Based on some kind of a very adult attraction. And it doesn't, you can't bring in the idea that we have as kids that that you're, desperate need for friends if you're lonely if you're new in town and those sorts of things um to to mine that as the the fodder for that kind of story is is really unique to me unless you watch ron's gone wrong i can't <laughs> recommend to you yeah, guys enough apparently there's a position go mm. watch ron's gone wrong and you'll be like oh like this is you had no idea how close it was to being a horror movie until you've seen this. And then you're like, holy shit. Like, mm-hmm. uh, and, and that is a- powerful, you know, like that is a, that is a great relationship to explore. I mean, we have seen curdled friendships in various forms. I found it poignant. I really did. I found it like weirdly affecting. Which makes this uh, this is going to be a tough vote, guys. I don't mm. know what are you where where are you guys leaning? Not you, Rich. <laughs> <laughs> like I Actually, said, Rich is the one that we should be listening to because he I didn't love for, Friday that much. Sorry. Yeah, for for me, like it's it is kind of a tough vote because like I guess like on paper, like I'd say that having watched both of these recently like i'd probably rather do child's play again 
but there, I will say that there is a part of me that is so sort of like there's a part of like my soul in terms of this competition where it's like I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for Friday the 13th part six <laughs> and like what yeah. kind of a monster would I be to turn my back on it now <laughs> and so I feel like I should probably just like follow it into the dark <laughs> well said <laughs> well um, I am on the verge of proposing a, a new wrinkle to you guys um, a backdoor of sorts for for films in this tournament I will leave it at that for now uh, but it makes it easier for me to vote for Friday the 13th part 6 Vivek is actively frowning at me right now I'm, I, you mentioned backdoor, and now I'm concerned. <laughs> <laughs> well, really, because the look on your face says intrigued. <laughs> maybe a little curious. <laughs> maybe a, a new wrinkle for round two, something we've discussed in the past. Possibly a, a <laughs> way. Is, no, the answer is no, John. Okay. <laughs> Do anal, Vic. Do anal. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, Vic. I'll do the chop top voice. <laughs> All right, Friday the Thirteenth. <laughs> yes, uh, yes. I will again with 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 some reluctance, with surprising reluctance. Uh, I'm I'm kind of with Rich in the sense that like, yeah, Friday the Friday the Thirteenth Part Six I think is my favorite Friday the Thirteenth film. It's arguably the most recognizable franchise in terms of slasher films. And if, if it can advance, yeah. It's, God help it's, us I, all. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. I just, th- I just think it's gotta be there, but that's no, that's no disrespect to this, which is a, a noble effort at rebooting a franchise that I think desperately needed uh, uh, some fresh blood if they were going to make more of it. So I'm just saying there's, there's a small chance that Child's Play, Midnight Meat Train, Blood Rage. We we how, might how, see them how again. Small, how small, John? Are we talking like pinky size? Like... <laughs> <laughs> well, as as we enter round two, we could take another look at films like Wes Craven's New Nightmare, Free Street 94, TCM 2003, <laughs> Stage Fright, Maniac 2012, and we we might swap something out. I don't know. I don't want to be crazy, but it's it's something I'm I'm gonna propose possibly. There's what there's 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 like a, there's gonna be like a buyer's remorse card you can play. I'm I'm just saying I I, I think that um, you know nothing is written in stone right now. But uh, let's let's leave it there. I think we should end this episode and this long night of recording. I uh, hope you all have enjoyed it as much as I have. Next time we get the following death matches. The original, A Nightmare on Elm Street, directed by Wes Craven, facing off against Silent Night, Deadly Night, Scream, another Wes Craven joint, going up against the remake of The Town That Dreaded Sundown, and two oldies in the appropriately named old school regional peeping Tom faces off with pieces until then. We hope you stay cool at the campground and practice safe sex. Always adios.
I got a break. Who